At the tail end of the sleepy month of August, a report was made to the sheriff's office in Greenville County, South Carolina, claiming that a group of clowns were attempting to lure local children into the woods behind an apartment building complex. Soon after, there came more neighboring reports of terrorizing behavior, ranging from banging on front doors to creepily stalking night commuters returning from work in the middle of the night. Sightings continued to emerge throughout the United States, nine provinces in Canada, and in 18 other countries. Some administrators were attempted to close down schools at the advent of Halloween, as it was rumored there would be a purge or a series of attacks made on the public celebrating the holiday. Some called law enforcement agencies to make arrests, or they would take matters into their own hands. Hot-blooded bravados ignored their own fear and boasted violent retaliation. Thankfully, like most hysteria-induced events, the clown scare of 2016 amounted to very little. Like some sort of sociological bad joke. When the fear subsided, rationalization set in with swift wings. We all sought an explanation to assuage our deep-rooted coulrophobia developed during our childhood. Some speculated that it was a marketing ploy for the new rendition of Stephen King's It, scheduled to release on September 8, 2017. Others surmised that the face-painted participants reflected mankind's fetish for fame and recognition in an ever-isolating postmodern world exacerbated by social media. Despite the causes, these events remind us of our primitive dispositions or our unconscious tendency to don one ourselves. We are ultimately drawn to masks. So, on today's Halloween Blitz episode of A Pod Upon a Hill, we will explore the origins of this primordial fixation and how it is expressed in the 21st century. We may just find out that the clown we should be really worried about is the one staring right back at us in the mirror. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Welcome back to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland here with Mr. V. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween to all you goblins and ghosts ghouls and ghouls. ghouls. That's, 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 that's the phrase. Goblins and ghouls. It's okay. I'm not an English teacher. You're not? No, you know, you're just not very familiar with Halloween jargon. That's all. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, um, what are we doing here today? This is the Halloween Blitz episode. Yeah. What is that all about? Blitz. Well, it's designed to be short, but I don't think it's going to be short. Oh, yeah? No, no, no. I think it's going to be... It's basically a... One of us is long-winded. Maybe it's both. <laughs> no, no. Um, but we, we kind of wanted to, you know, shake things up a little bit and talk again about masks and uh, shift focus a little bit, kind of take a break from some of the historical... Uh, uh, topics that we that we're going to be discussing throughout the year. So, but this is something just to whet the appetite until we kind of prepare for the next one. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of trying out a, a different format here today, doing it in two segments: part one and part two. Uh, part one will be uh, discussing the origins of the masks, 
um, in general, and we have a special guest, Miss Seaway. Wonderful, I wonderful woman. Um, and then part two will just be Mr. Copeland and I, and we'll just be discussing how uh, maybe some of our masks are going to lead to some sort of political consequences. And um, we hope you enjoy. And as always, you can always email us at a pot upon a hill at gmail.com. A pot upon a hill at gmail. Part one, the origins of the mask. One does not have to be a decorated anthropologist to recognize the symbolism of the mask. Its significance lies in its practical function, to cover the identity of the wearer and give him or her a new one. Masks are inherently deceptive and mysterious, hence our fascination and uneasiness with them. The intention of hiding behind a new identity need not be nefarious, however. Masks have always been key to the human experience. In ancient Greece, for example, actors would wear masks during theatrical productions to give the audience a visceral connection with mythology and lore. The masks that represented figures like Hercules, Oedipus, and Medea allowed the viewer to transcend to a fictional world of infinite possibility, far away from their mundane lives. But perhaps the most obvious illustration of our affinity is in the celebration of Halloween itself. Initially a pagan harvest festival where celebrants wore masks to honor the dead or ward off contact with evil spirits, today children, as well as adults, love the opportunity to temporarily be something they are not, something that is scary, funny, or even risque. This tradition of dressing up has carried over to other quasi-religious holidays such as Mardi Gras or Carnival, Although we seem to have evolved beyond wearing traditional masks, make no mistake, costumes, makeup, and wigs are just more efficient and acceptable forms of deception. Like the days of old, we revel in the endless possibilities of hiding behind something entirely different. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with pretending? Miss Seawagon and I weigh in on these questions in a conversation recorded earlier. So we're talking about masks here, and I'm with uh, the illustrious Miss Seawagon. Illustrious? The illustrious. Okay. Uh, you actually have some, uh, some expertise, I think, in this, in this field. I don't know if I call it expertise. Okay. But <laughs> I am certainly not an expert, but I definitely teach about the masks. So uh, in the concept of context of Greek theater, so Greek masks were worn during uh, Greek performances, and in my research I found that they have several purposes. So one of the purposes was because all the actors were men, because of course, you know, the patriarchy, and you know, why do we need women to play badass female roles? We'll use men for it. So it helped them to play female parts right. a little bit more realistically. Right. Uh, it allowed them to play multiple roles in a performance, and they also were able to create these elaborate emotions with the masks and so it sort of helped to enhance the feeling and the motion for all the spectators that were hanging out in the back in the cheap seats that couldn't really see anything and it made it a little bit more dramatic um, and another thing that I found in my research is the connection then to the god Dionysus so the the theater festivals the god of wine Dionysus is connected to the mask in that because he's the god of wine there's this concept that you know when the person drinks the wine of Dionysus, they are able to be freed of all their inhibitions, thereby removing their mask and showing their true self. So their true 
form, their true persona is able to kind of shine through as opposed to, you know, the illusions we put on every day, depending on who we're around, depending on who these people are, we wear these different masks and the wine, you know, you know, Veritas, the truth is in the wine, everything kind of comes out. It's interesting. So it's like almost like the societal sanction of being true to yourself after consuming large amounts of wine. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like you can apply this to modern uh, modern time. I mean, like you said before, a lot of us put on masks. Uh, obviously not literal masks, but figurative masks in terms of personas. And, Absolutely. Uh, I believe, like, uh, didn't the psychologist Carl Jung talk a little about that? Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we kind of put ourselves into these little categories and these identities in, in our respective environments. Yeah, and, you know, he... In utilizing sort of his um, character archetype, that all people wear four masks. The first one is the persona, and this is basically like who we are in our everyday everyday lives. So it's almost like, I think the best way I could describe it is kind of the different hats that we wear. So I have my Missy Wagon mask, right. where I'm Missy Wagon, I'm the teacher, right. or... That students are desperately trying to find the, the, the real version of you, Exactly, right? they're, or they're, these... They're obsessed with every... Sea wags, as yeah. they've called me, or wags, <laughs> or whatever it might be. The yeah, sea, sea monster, monster, the sea dragon, <laughs> you know, we've got, we've got it all. So, you know, there's that role. But then I also have mommy. For my children, I play that role, I wear that mask, I'm the mom, I do this, I do that, I have to put on, you know, be a certain kind of person when I'm around my kids, and then I'm another person when I'm around my colleagues, and another person when I'm around my friends, and we all do this, we all, you know, and we're not, you know, pretending to be something we're not, it's just a matter of fitting into the different roles that we have to play, and we have to almost, like an actor in a show hence the Greek theater, we have to, you know, be that particular person at that particular time. And it doesn't necessarily mean we're being fake. Mm -hmm. It's just these different aspects of our persona. Um, The second mask that he speaks of is the shadow. And the shadow is, you know, basically like thinking of Star Wars. It's the dark side. It's that other side of us, the part that we, you You know, we hide behind that we try to like keep suppressed, you know, but it's still a part of us. So we can't ignore it. And, you know, it's important to know it and to understand it, but to kind of, you know, have control of it. Then after that, he speaks of the soul. The soul he talks about this is the source of knowledge, the perception of reality, this, you know, sort of thinking outside the box. And you can almost equate it with allegory of the cave. The idea of, you know, um, going out into the light and, you know, seeing beyond what's just on the surface. And then sort of the ultimate that you get to is for men the wise old man. Interesting. Or for the women the like great mother goddess. Okay. Why do you why do women get a better categorization than men? Wise old man is not as cool as mother goddess. Well because we're awesome. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the men have the patriarchy. They've got everything. Well the least we could have is, is to be cool, the great cool mother goddess. I mean you guys got wise. That's fair. That's you fair. know. But uh but yeah, so these are, you know, those two sides and this is about sort of like channeling everything, you know, into this sort of solid center. Almost getting to that point, getting to that point of enlightenment can also come with cost. Hubris. Mm-hmm. Can come with that flaw. You know, when you finally reach that point, 
not to let it consume you and, you know, kind of take over your ego. So it's interesting so to speak. Be, because you're, you're seem, it seems to su- you're suggesting that um, these stages of like Jungian psyche, psych- psycho development can lead us to enlightenment, but also by going through those stages, we can become stuck. Yeah. And we can also become like another person. We can, we can become lost in yeah, the shadow. Absolutely. And we become lost in, in this, in a, in a portion of our identity. Yeah. And, and he, in, in one of the articles that I read, one of the things that it said was that he almost warns to kind of like avoid getting to that final point. Like be careful about getting to that final point because it does come with that cost in the end. So there's no, there's no problem you know, with, you know, overemphasizing my Mr. Venus in terms of school. Yeah. But if I get lost in that one aspect of my identity, exactly. there'll be other aspects yeah. of my identity that will be completely Yeah, and um, there's, you know, neglected. and there's flaws in, in every one of these masks, so to speak. And it's about finding, you know, what I think is, is about finding this kind of, you know, balance. And I think it's important to understand that we do wear these masks. And I think if you get that, and you understand that, then you won't get lost in any of them. It's interesting because I, I, I'm, we're, we're talking in front of a student audience and I'm wondering if they don't even know how to identify their own masks. You know, like yeah. it's hard to even identify yourself as a person holistically, let alone go through the sub-identities sub yeah. of, of, of who you are. And so. I think we spend our whole lives trying to figure all those things right. out, trying to understand ourselves. And, you know, especially as we get into these, you know, new roles, because as we get older we get new roles and then we have to learn, all right, what is my purpose in this new role? How do I fit this new role? What do I do in this new role? And now you have to understand these new layers that you didn't know existed. So, you know, are you, do you ever really, can you even really ever get to that point of the wise old man or the great mother? Because can you ever really achieve that true understanding? Because things are changing. Yeah, things are, you know, things are changing. Things are evolving. Like, you know, mom wasn't always a title for me. Right. But then, you know, three and a half years ago, it became a title. Or wife. Or wife. Or teacher, you know. And, And old roles and old masks that we wore eventually go away. And they disappear. And then we have to learn to adapt to those changes that we don't have that anymore. So are you suggesting that it's healthy almost to kind of wear these masks as long as we provide a balance? Or do you think that there should be some movement to like getting rid of the masks? I know because a lot of this is a big movement of like keeping things quote real and genuine and being true to yourself and to thine own self be true. Even Polonius mentioned this. Do you think that we should be telling our audiences that we should be focusing on getting rid of these masks or just learning how to cope with them and, and be and balancing, like you said before. Yeah, I don't think that it's something that really needs to be gotten rid of. I, I almost feel like they, you know, I don't want to use the word entertainment, but they provide variety in our lives, you know? We don't need to get rid of the masks. I think the problem is when we confuse some of these masks for that true reality. Mm. Where like that's the, that's who they are exactly completely and that only. we kind of lose that you know especially with you know the internet now and the different you know personas that people create and all the filtering this and filtering that right, and you can manufacture your mask exactly now to, to cater to your specific exactly. audience or your personal yeah. interests and again you know it's not a horrible thing but 
the problem emerges when we take that as reality. And I think that as long as we understand that not all of these masks are reality, that some of these are just, you know, these illusions that we create, if we understand that, then that's okay. Because, you know, it's the spice of life. You know, I mean, it's Halloween. Where would we be without masks, you know? Like, we need masks. In many ways, we would be faceless. But I'm bunch. <laughs> To the S to the K, put the mask on the face just to make your next day. Let's be mocking me, jokers be stalking me. I walk the street and camouflage my identity. My posse in the Brooklyn wear the mask. My crew in the Jersey wear the mask. Pick up kids doing boogie woogie wear the mask. And welcome back to Pot Upon a Hill. That was a really good conversation you had with Miss Sigma. Yeah, nice. she was great and very, uh, very informative. For sure. I was glad we were able to get her to come on. Um, you know what? I think it would be great if we didn't get the help of our listeners here, all our AP scholars. Yeah, now that you mention it, it was really difficult to get her to record something. If only we had a whole audience to pressure some other guest speakers. Yeah, I know. I mean, part of the problem is neither of us have any friends. But right. the other part is... <laughs> When we're trying to get these, you know, teachers that are... We're in a recording. We're in the, we're in the chorus room right now. It's Halloween, 7.49 p.m. <laughs> this is our life. Anyway, stop laughing. Be professional. All right. So what we're trying to say is we would really appreciate it if you could pressure some of your teachers. Tell them about our podcast. Get us a few more listens. We always like that. But most importantly, extra credit for the second quarter... If you can help us book any of the other faculty members in the building, it will be a huge advantage for your uh, grade going into the third quarter. That's right. One person that's listening to this right now. If we got at least 1% chance greater. That's that. right. <laughs> the one person that's listening to this right now on a Halloween night, if you get us your favorite teacher, if you get them to be on this podcast, we will award you some extra points. All right. What we're going to talk about the rest of the podcast is cultural appropriation and we're going to talk about what it is, what it isn't, and I'm going to dive into the strict definition that we have, a few examples, but Mr. V and I are going to have a little conversation about its origins, about how miscommunication can play a role in it, and also how we can avoid doing it. I hope you enjoy. All right. Stay tuned for part two. Part two, cultural appropriation, when masks main. Perhaps one of the most controversial forms of mask wearing in our society today is the tendency of an individual or group to inappropriately emulate the culture of another group outside mainstream society. This phenomenon is called cultural appropriation, and it has garnered the wrathful attention of pundits from the, from the right as well as the left. At its core, this issue is centered upon our inability to determine what is objectively appropriate when adopting other cultural practices apart from our own. Some on the left argue that when individuals who enjoy the benefits of being a member of the majority in a given society adopt the fashion style, language, or behavior of a disenfranchised group, they most often superficially mimic these aspects of their culture without a thorough understanding of its historical or contemporary significance. As a result, the subordinates group's identity is cheapened to a mere collection of gimmicky attributes or stereotypes. Whether it's a white man wearing dreadlocks who indirectly deconstructs Rastafarianism to a comical caricature, 
or when you have a white woman who's maybe using slang words that she does not understand the true origin of. Some on the right would argue that just because I style my hair a certain way, I have a certain fashion style that I'm deciding to use, which is unique, doesn't mean that I have any certain feelings about a specific group that represents their culture. I am not making any political statement. It's just a personal preference of mine. And if anyone is offended, that is not my problem, but theirs. All right, and this brings us to the point where I want to bring in Mr. V for this conversation, because what we want to talk about is, first off, what cultural appropriation is. We want to make sure we're aware of the terms and everything that uh, it is not. And to understand that, we also want to put on the table the fact that, you know, right now in our political climate or just having conversations at home or on television, you often see people say, oh, you're just being politically correct. That's all this is. Although sometimes people are politically incorrect, and sometimes there's a emphasis to sanitize our language. What's more important is if we're truly to understand different cultures, we need to recognize our faults and we also need to recognize what we can learn from one another. Okay, so um, the terms we want to focus on first is cultural diffusion. What is that, Mr. So cultural diffusion, it's the idea of some groups' cultural advancements, achievements, practices, norms are somehow extended to another group through some sort of um, uh, maybe maybe trade routes or perhaps war. Uh, we know that cultural diffusion happens quite frequently. That's how the West got gunpowder interactions with the East. Precisely, and we know that's through the connection to Silk Road. We know that the, we've developed our numeric system based on uh, the Arabs and their, 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 their way they traveled uh, throughout North Africa and as well as cutting up to Mediterranean, to Italy and Greece. Um, so, you know, when we talk about cultural appropriation, it's really important to kind of make sure that we know that this is not cultural diffusion, that it's, it's a transfer or uh, a promotion of one's achievements or practices to another group. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about our country, we talk about how it is a melting pot of many different cultures. Um, I forget who said it, but what makes America unique and what makes it great, uh, this, I think it was 20 or 30 years ago, um, there was an example I heard that I really liked was America isn't necessarily the melting pot we've always been told, where everyone comes in as one thing and then turns into this blob of oneness, of, of unity, without unique characteristics in our own. What he described it more of was as a vegetable soup, and that every single ingredient that you add to that, every little sprinkle of salt and, and seasoning, every uh, cup of broth and every piece of barley that you may put in there, adds to the flavor, and it, like a fine wine, it, it increases in its flavor and its taste and its enjoyment with the more different ingredients you include in it. But the carrot still tastes like a carrot. Oh, yeah. The celery still Look tastes like you celery. you doing a little bit of a metaphor. You're not even an English teacher. <laughs> I love that. But that is really what, recognizing that all of us have our own identities in ourselves that we should not ignore, that we should not erase to become Americans, it's the collection of those that makes it good. All right, all right. So, I, again, and I, I really think this is, you, you're making a really good picture. So if we know what cultural diffusion is, we know what cultural assimilation is or uh, adoption is, well, what's what do you think a cultural appropriation is? Well, when you look at cultural appropriation, I think it boils down to communication, a lack thereof, and really just a miscommunication. Primarily, the group that's in the majority here in America, the white people are in the majority, 
often there's a miscommunication about assumptions made by white people about other cultures. So let, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess your definition of cultural appropriation would be a misapplication of cultural assimilation. Yeah, and it, often cultural appropriation isn't even intended to um, somehow mimic or mock another culture. Right. You know, the, when you present somebody as saying, well, I don't know if you should be doing that, that's probably a little insensitive to their culture, what you're uh, representing there. Their idea is, oh, I was just trying to represent what it means to be this or what it means to right. be that. I had no idea. That. I had no foul intentions. It's, but what you're doing is you're looking at it superficially, and that's part of the failure within the group that is appropriating. And, you know, it's funny. It's, um, it, it, I feel like I have an event uh, that, that was like kind of widely practiced in the 19th century. I don't know if you're familiar with cakewalks. Are you? Uh, you'd have to. So, you'd have to define that for me. Yeah. So sure. I think this is a really good uh, example that illustrates what Mr. Copeland's talking about. So cakewalks w was basically an informal uh, festival where slaves on a plantation would have to dress up as their their masters in ballroom gowns or tuxedos or suits and whatnot, and their plantation owners would serve as judges and they would have to kind of, you know, I guess mimic or emulate the dances that they would see from their white masters at ballrooms. And the idea was that the white judges would try to score them based on how well they performed in front of them. Now, whoever won or danced the best or danced the most white-like would win a cake. And that's where we get the word, you know, the, the phrase, you know, you take the cake, or it's as easy as cake, right? Um, or now, I guess now we say it's easy as pie. Um, but I guess, over time, the slaves in participating in this event, through their hyperbolic or over-exaggerated dance moves, that was a way, historians have come to understand, as a way of mocking um, these, these white aristocrats for judging them. And it so was a, it was so a the, slaves are, the slaves are basically saying, oh, here you go, here's the dance you want to see. Here I am. There we go. Enjoy that right there. Yeah, with the, with the, with the flailing of the arms and the legs and the, and the, the, the jangling and ambling and, and, and as white people are clapping, this was a subtle like way dig. of a dig yeah, yeah. or a subtle way of resisting uh, slavery. One of the, the you know the, the subversive ways. Exactly, because you don't when when you are put in a situation like that, little things like that are powerful. You know, subversion of things like that because you don't have many ways to express yourself freely. Right. So. The, you're telling me the slave owners are watching these slaves, they're putting on these festivals and these competitions, expecting them to do their very best, to do the best waltz that they know how. Right. And the slaves are basically saying, oh, here's your waltz. Exactly. Okay. And, and, and again, it's, it's, it's an unwitting, um, like, subversive form of rebellion. And here's what... what Wait, so the owners didn't know that they were mocking I. It's hard. It's, it's re the line is really blurry. But most historians argue about this, and most have come to the conclusion that there were some slave, uh, slave owners that were not aware of this. And here's where the appropriation comes in. When slavery ends and the, the Jim Crow era begins, over time, the cakewalk uh, will become codified as, like, a standard, standardized dance. Mm -hmm. And it will be continued. It will survive this, this festival. And it will leak into other areas of entertainment, uh, such as in vaudeville shows or in opera houses up in North. Yeah. Now, over time, as generations um, experience this dance, they lose the historical significance of the cake. Walk. Most of those were done in blackface, right? They weren't black actors. They were white actors in blackface well, performing well, those. Yeah. What, what happens is you have black dancers at, at first beginning to – perform these cakewalks in front of white audiences. But over time, white 
actors themselves will take on the cakewalk yeah. and start to emulate and, and by using blackface. But here, here it is. When the white actors in the 1910s, 20s, 30s start to do this, they are largely ignorant of the historical original, original yeah. origins of this. And, and, and when they don on the blackface and they do the cakewalk, they think they are mimicking and mocking some sort of poor or savage tribalistic yeah. dance. Look how foolish the black slave looks. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have the white curly teeth and the white gloves. And, it's, and, and, and to modern audiences, yeah, everyone, regardless of political position, it's quite offensive. But I'm trying to make the point here is that it was largely due to the ignorance and the lack of historical context of these original cakewalks that are found in Antebellum South. Yeah, when we're on the topic, um, you know, when we talk about blackface, kind of jogs my memory. Just several years ago here on Long Island, it's a bunch of suburban white kids who think they're doing a great job on Halloween because they chose to be either a black politician or some type of professional athlete. And to make their costume really stand out, they end up going on to a Halloween party in blackface. And this isn't just teenagers. There are some adults who have done the same thing. And it's not that they are intentionally doing something that the origin of blackface was. You know, When you look at the reason why white actors, who were the ones getting paid to do this, putting on blackface, it's to demean the entire culture of black people to make them seem as um, inferior, more, uh, more like savages and like... Um, it fit into their tribalistic stereotypes that have been, been constructed for yeah, them. Intellectually incapable of handling so, more work. So I guess you know, what you're saying like is had these people that, dressed, that, that put on blackface were aware of the historical significance of the cakewalk and the minstrel yeah. shows, they would never absolutely just ever like the paint shows, themselves black. Exactly. Just like the minstrel shows missed out on the original or origins of the cakewalk, you know, here in the twenty uh, in the two thousands we have white people in suburban America here on Long Island completely missing out on what blackface represents and what it means to that culture, to black culture, and what that represents as a slap in the face to their legitimacy as equal standing in our society. Now, to be a counter here, um, one would say, well, why can't I express myself regardless if I hurt the feelings of others? In fact, you know, we have shows like South Park, Family Guy, that really cross the line for the sake of humor, for the sake of satire. What, what, what would you say to that, Mr. Copeland? I think satire is often used to touch on these sensitive topics. All right? It's used to try and shine the light on the person who might be in the dark, okay? The person who misses this whole argument, if they're watching South Park and South Park can get them to laugh about something, it exposes, it enlightens a certain aspect of whether it be cultural, humor, race relations, or um, anything to do with the topic we just mentioned. That's not the important part. It's that what it's used for, and satire is used to enlighten. Right, used to enlighten or, or, or expose, like you said, the inequities that are found expose, in our society. Expose inequities, or you could just expose injustices, expose corruption. It's used against politicians, it's used against anyone, and it often can be used against ourselves. So people will be laughing, and they don't realize that they're laughing at themselves sometimes when, when watching satire. Interesting. It's almost like satire could be like, it's like a weapon, right? If you don't know how to use it. It could be a mirror looking right back at yourself, too. If you're watching a quality satire program, that's the best. Now, I know we've kind of like used blackface, to, and, and we did it intentionally so, to be like kind of like 
overtly dramatic over the top to, to make to make an example. But for some of you who are still confused about the cultural appropriation, why don't we find more nuanced ways of how uh, us might, uh, as white people, unwittingly uh, culturally appropriate in everyday society? And I think it stems back from this idea in the 19th century called exoticism, and it's this idea where white people were so comfortable with their Western society that there was some sort of like boredom. And because of this boredom, there was going to be a peak interest in things that are non-Western, particularly uh, Asian culture, as defined way back then as Orientalism. So you have a lot of white people, particularly rich white people, uh, making trips to the, quote, Orient uh, to buy uh, samurai swords or uh, tapestries made from India or even in the Middle East to go and, and collect some uh, artifacts, uh, you know, inspired from the biblical stories of old. Um, so in the, in the, in the wake of, of cultural appropriation today, I believe that many people today, uh, especially the newer generations, appropriate or take on the practices of other cultures because they have really failed to discover their true identity themselves. Yeah, and there's a boredom there. Well, it's also, you know, it can be a boredom. It could just be, you know, teenagers are finding themselves too. You know, when you look at anybody who's going through a phase, as parents would say, you know, a crisis of identity is to find out who you really are. Right? What does it mean to be you? And if you don't have a strong connection with your culture, sometimes it's easy for those uh, individuals to seek others. Right? So that can happen simply with, you know, music, art, you know, it could be piercings, tattoos, it could be the color of your hair, it could be the style that you want to present yourself to the world. You know, you could be wearing maybe more clothing that is not typically your, the culture that other people might identify you as, but that's something you want to try out. You want to present this to the world. And it's important to note, guys, that if you want to express that about yourself, so be it. But do so with some sort of understanding and knowledge and significance uh, behind the culture that, that, that you're adopting or assimilating. Um, to do so without any knowledge is, is to kind of uh, – it's, it's, it's irresponsible. I mean, wasn't uh, one of a famous celebrity did something recently and she kind of – Well, I mean, Katy Perry, okay, I remember Katie. hearing something about that where she was criticized for um, – in a lot of her music videos appropriating certain cultures, whether it be Asian culture, black culture – based on some of the things that uh, she was wearing, how she was dressing, um, how she was presenting herself with makeup to maybe make her seem a little bit more of uh, an Asian appearance, um, or whether it be her hairstyle in building up an afro or something, that's something that she not typically would wear. So she recognized this. She um, met with certain groups and says she understands why now she was wrong, but she was just not aware of what she was doing. She thought she was honoring. Right. She thought she was basically displaying, I enjoy right. this so type much of culture. I want to express I, I want to show everybody, hey, right. you know, Japanese culture is really fascinating. I enjoy right. this. Right. But, but, but by doing so, she's perpetuating stereotypes. Exactly. She's cheapening the, the, the significance of it. So it's quite ironic. Where the, the biggest fanboys or fangirls out there are the ones who are actually cheapening the very culture that they love. Sure. And it's it's something that, you know, there's there's a fine line, but it's really about intent more than anything. So if your intention is to promote yourself as something other than yourself, you can do so, but you should, as you mentioned earlier, you need to have an understanding of the why behind it. Why is that a significant thing in their culture? And you need to acknowledge it. And perhaps if we were more careful and more cognizant of the 
perhaps if we were more aware or cognizant of the multiple cultural masks that we appropriate sometimes, maybe there wouldn't be a need for people to be quote-unquote the political correct police. There wouldn't be a need for people to uh, constantly call out some of these people who do so unwittingly. Yeah, I mean, it's just really, do you care if you're offending someone else? If you were to bump into somebody in the hallway, do you just keep walking? No, you go, hey, excuse me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Right. right. If right. I saw you, maybe I would think twice about apologizing. But, <laughs> I think half know, the population of this school just bumps into <laughs> each other without it. <laughs> but that's the thing. is like, are you out for yourself? Do you not care about anyone else that you're interacting with? Or when someone is expressing to you their experience in the world, do you basically validate that by saying, all right, I understand what you're saying. Maybe I wasn't uh, clear in my understanding of the culture I was, was seemingly showing some respect to, but maybe I was disrespecting. All right, folks. Well, that wraps about our Blitz episode on masks. For those of you who are going out tonight, trick-or-treating, maybe going to a nice costume party, please remember that the mask you're wearing and that you should be really aware of is the mask underneath the mask. Oh, that was some deep stuff. Keanu Reeves, mind-blowing stuff. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. Be safe. <laughs>